to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. I am really pleased to welcome Nigel Harris, Managing Editor of Rail Magazine, Britain's biggest selling railway journal, for episode nine of Intuitive Insights. Nigel has been leading the Rail Magazine since 1995 and so celebrated his silver anniversary last year. He's also the host of the National Rail Awards, the Industry Oscars and the Rail 100 Breakfast. He is a regular expert commentator for the BBC, Sky News and the wider national media and I'm absolutely delighted that he has joined me on Intuitive Insights to share some of his thoughts, knowledge and experience with us all. I hope you enjoy. Nigel, good morning and welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast, um, episode number nine. I can't believe how quickly these are coming round, but I am absolutely delighted to welcome you to the virtual couch this morning. You mean you've run out of anybody else to talk to, so it's good <laughs> Not at all, not at all. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Okay. Um, I think, you know, you and I have known each other. I'm reckoning it must be nearly eight years because I've been in the rail, knocking around the rail industry for that long now. And um, and I'm privileged to call you not just a, an associate in terms of the industry, but a very good friend. And you've been amazing in terms of helping me to understand what goes on in this amazing industry that we work in. Yeah. The, the opportunity to talk to you on the podcast and and kind of talk to you about your career, how you came into the industry in the first place, um, what you think we've got to look forward to in terms of the opportunities ahead of us as an industry, and also some of your own inspirations and people you've worked with and, and stuff you've learned along the way um, is a real privilege. So I'm going to um, hand over to you uh, to start us off with that conversation and tell us about your career and um, and why rail? In some ways, it's a very long story. In some ways, it's a very short one. Um, I never had any idea what I wanted to do at school at, at all. Um, I fell into university largely by accident. Um, I certainly fell into journalism entirely by accident. And then I fell into railway journalism by accident. Um, I've worked for three steamers, three seasons on the lake steamers on Windermere during my university vacations. And on the last one in 1979, it was coming up that I'd have to go home. And I, I didn't want to go home. And I'm not sure my parents want to be home either. Um, and I had three weeks and there was a copy of the Westman Gazette on the boat one morning. I was on Swift going up between Ambleside and Bonus in the rain. There was advert for a trainee reporter. So I dashed off the boat at, uh, at Bonus, no mobile phones then. The editor happened to answer the phone and said, could you come in for an interview? And I said, well, I could go in, come see you tomorrow. I'll be in that laundrette next to you watching Kendall, watching me socks go around. And I walked straight into it. I just, I'd just graduated. I lived in the lakes. I had a car and he took the chance and took me on. Um, I've never, never thought of being a journalist at all. Did it for a couple of years. Then I fell into railway journalism again, largely by accident. Um, on the way home from doing all the stuff, Magistrates Court one morning, I saw a copy of Steam World, which is a brand new magazine in newsagent's shop window. And so it was edited from High Bentham near Lancaster. David Wilcock was editing it from home, uh, rang him up, made contact, went to see him, did some freelance work. And then he rang up and said, do you want to be assistant editor? 
So I managed to make the leap from unqualified and indeed indentured, they had them in those days, trainee, um, to number two on a national magazine overnight, um, which was the only time I've ever doubled my salary from five to £10,000 a year. Um, did that for a couple of years. Um, we did such a good job at giving EMAP's Steam Railway a hard time that they bought us and closed us. Um, that would never happen in magazine publishing now. Um, they uh, and on an HR point of view, this is an interesting point. I remember the publisher, who I better not name, came up to High Bentham, sat in David's lounge, and looked at me and said, um, "You've done a really good job with Steam World. You and David have given us a terribly hard time with Steam Railway. So we bought the magazine. We're closing it down. We're keeping David, but there's no place for you. You're out." And those were his exact words. Oh my goodness. Uh, I was 24 and two months into my first mortgage. This was December 1983. Fantastic Christmas present. Absolutely. Um, so I sort of buckled down. You have to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and start all over again, like the song says. Um, and with my then partner, later wife, founded Silverlink Publishing, the book publishing company, yeah. with a meagre amount of money that IPC voluntarily gave because they realised they treated me pretty badly. Um, we ran Silverlink for seven, eight, nine years, uh, and then we we separated, sold the company, uh, and EMAP had rung me up and said, uh, we'll, there's a, a launch against Steam Railway, um, and we're going to launch relaunch Steam World to compete with it. They used to do that. If you had one magazine in a market and somebody launched against you, you'd launch a second magazine into the same market and squeeze the newcomer out. And we'd like you to edit Steam Railway and um, Steam World. And my mind went back to that conversation about there's no place to you, you're out. And I said, well, we need a bit of a conversation about pay, don't we? Yeah. Um, so I did that freelance for two years um, and it was great fun. And then the phone went in about February 1992 and they said, we're, um, we wonder if you're interested in editing Steam Railway. And I'd always said I'd never moved to Peterborough. I lived in St. Michael's on Wye near Garstang in that glorious farmland named Lancashire Cheese, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. But I'd, I'd been on my own for a couple of years, got divorced, and I thought, well, fresh start. Um, and so I moved to Peterborough and uh, took Steam Railway and gave myself six months to sort it out naively. It took me three and a half years. Um, and the turning point was October 94 when we got the first steam engine back into King's Cross for 30 years when Union of South Africa ran two steam railway specials to Peterborough. We worked with British Rail Special Trains Unit to make that happen. Um, and after that, the magazine was flying. And I would ever edit it gets to feel like I felt for the last six months. It feels like you're strapped to the front of a rocket. Um, and the sales just flew, the shot up. Yeah. And then in July 1995, exactly 25 years ago, actually, my boss called me into his office and said, look, I've got a bit of a problem with rail, which was then being edited by the great Peter Kelly, who launched it as a bi-monthly in, um, in 1981. And it went monthly and it had gone bi-weekly, uh, bi-monthly, fortnightly. Yeah. Um, and I said, why, what's your problem? Um, bear in mind, this is 1995. He said, well, he said, the railways have been privatised and we need to change rail or develop it quickly. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, it's an enthusiast gazette and there is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with a hobbyist magazine. The problem is they're tiny niche markets. Uh, and EMAP was a big publisher with a fortnightly magazine with an editorial staff of half a dozen. And obviously quite a lot of costs. There's no way 
that uh, and of course the railway at the time was getting much more tedious from the point of view if all you're interested in is watching it which is great fun i love it myself mm. if that's all you're interested in we were losing locomotives freight trains brake vans branch lines signal boxes all the things that made the railway exotic and fascinating were in decline um, a bit like if you're an ornithologist and you you're suddenly transposed from some tropical rainforest with all the exotic breeds to a, a spinny in Essex with sparrows and starlings, you know. Mm. There's yeah. no way it would have withstood, the magazine could have withstood um, that sort of um, declining market. And so we need to do what it does now, but just make it bigger. For anybody that's interested in railways, and where I'm not editing it, I'd be a perfect reader for rail. I love watching trains, I always have, you know, I still do. Yeah. Uh, but I am interested in the strategy the, the politics, which you can't separate it from, the finances. Um, railways exist for us and by us, not in some little bubble for just for you to be interested in. Yeah. But I still nearly didn't do it. it this was a Wednesday afternoon. And I said, well, when, when do you want an answer? He said, Peter's up for it. And what I'd do is we'd swap you over. Peter would go and edit Steam Railway and you'd switch on to rail. <sighs> well, I said, I'll think about it. When do you want an answer? He said, in the morning. And this was the Wednesday afternoon at four o'clock. He was pretty shrewd, was Clive, who you know on the NRA. Yeah, I and I drove back in that morning thinking, I'm not doing this. And I went into his office and I heard this voice say, well, OK, I'll give it a go. But if it doesn't work, I want to go back on Steam Railway, which is incredibly unrealistic because you never go back, do you? Uh, and he was, he was shrewd enough to say, yeah, well, OK. And I came out thinking, did I just say I'm going to do this? But I came very close to turning it down. Um, and I would have missed out on the most incredible, it's been the most fantastic privilege to edit rail um, and be in the front row um, from before privatisation, immediately before privatisation, mm. um, and to have watched the whole thing, um, you know, right through the very freewheeling franchises through to real shutdown to careful control horribly controlled franchises, the coming and going of the SRA, you know, um, John Swift at the regulator's office giving way to Tom Windsor and 10 sectors of state uh, since 2000, all but three I've had a one-to-one -one relationship with. Um, and it's just been the most amazing ride. You know, it, it is true that journalism is the first draft of history and sometimes we get it right. And sometimes, you know, the railway doesn't and we will just reflect what goes on. Um, it's our job to hold up a mirror uh, and show what's going on, the good, the bad, and the, the, the in-between, and then overlay that with a degree of entertainment through the features, analysis and opinion through the columnists, and mm. uh, me, me up the front sort of doing me a bit in comment. So that, yeah. it was a, look, I've only ever applied for that one job on the phone that day at Bonus. I've never applied for another job. It's just happened. Um, yeah. Just, if you like, one little anecdote. I'm a huge fan of the Eagles. And Joe Walsh, the guitar player, has had a life of, of excess, shall we say. In an Eagles documentary a couple of years ago, said something that really made me sit up. He said, you know, he said, when you're young, he said, you feel like you're the ball in a pinball machine. He said, just being catapulted everywhere, bouncing between your job and your relationship and your friends and, and everything. He says, you look back after 30 years and it looks like a well-crafted novel. Um, <laughs> And he isn't wrong. I can see the places where fundamental things happened, which set me on, on, on a course which took me, took me to where I am now. Yeah. And without those things, it, it just, and it's fascinating to look at that, you know, that newspaper um, on, on the boat that day and various yeah. sort of things since. I might write about it one day. 
I honestly think you should. As I'm listening to this, you know, I've got I've got an image of you being on that because I, you know, I've I've been on those boats and it, um, and I've got an image in my head of you picking up the paper and it kind of going from there. Um, all we would need to think about, perhaps, it's one for over a bottle of wine and a, you know, when we can actually get back in a social engagement. But we would need to think about who would play you in the film. <laughs> So that needs some careful consideration. I think we'll have on answers on a postcard for that. I need, I need some thought on that because it all it's <laughs> a, who you choose says a lot about you, doesn't it? It does indeed. Subconscious. It's a great, it's a great, great story. And I think you know, from my experience in our conversations over the last few years, then um, I know that you have a love of history and you've shared that with me. But that for me, your knowledge of the history of the railway not just the last 25 years, but way beyond that, um, is is just vast, absolutely vast. And that combination of your understanding of where we came from, which is really critical, I think, in terms of yeah, where, where are we going, but also that other side to it, that as you've said, it's about the, the strategy, it's about the politics. My God, I had no idea until I came into this industry, how political it was, I have not a clue. Your grasp of that, your understanding of how that works, and and also your commercial application to what's going on as well. Um, and that comes out time and time again in your comment. So I think it's just such a great combination of skills. And, and yes, you know, it, it perhaps did feel like a pinball machine, but when you look back at it, then I think that there have been opportunities presented to you and you've just grabbed them with both hands, haven't you? Well, sometimes it was instinctively, yes, you're right. Uh, and sometimes I thought, yeah, that's a really good idea, we'll do that. And sometimes I thought, yes, that's a really stupid idea, and I've still done it. You know, we've all, <laughs> we've all, we've all been there. But, I mean, thanks for coming from As for my knowledge of railway history, remember, it's, it's this deep and this wide, you know, whereas <laughs> other people, you know, haven't. But... I mean, the thing about the history is, is right, and you know what I'm going to say now because I've said it to you a thousand times. You know that those who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat its mistakes. Mm. Um, and whether you apply it to COVID in the last twelve months or the railway as a whole, you, you can just see it going. And that's the thing about it's one of the good things about getting older. And there's, there's not many, as my knees frequently remind me, <laughs> is that you do start to recognise the cycles. Um, of, of how things how things go, um, you know, particularly with political involvement in the realm of privatisation to nationalisation to distancing, and then the political control creeps back, and then it's 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 a big thing. Um, is that understanding or at least perception of history and being aware of what's gone on, you know, because why make the same stupid mistakes somebody else made twenty years ago? Yeah. Well, as we know, and we've said many times, as have others. There is a window of opportunity ahead of us in the industry. Um, nobody ever would have wanted to have gone through what what the world and the nation and the industry and as individuals have gone through over the last 10, 11 months since the, the pandemic broke. Um, but we've been through it and we are in it. <clears throat> and there are there are definitely lessons to learn, which we're going to come on to shortly. But I am really interested to hear and, and would like you to kind of share your thoughts around what do we do with that window of opportunity? What are the key things? And, you know, I've given previous guests three wishes, Nigel. I've said I'll get my magic wand out and you've got three wishes. If you can narrow it down 
because I appreciate there are so many things. What yeah. are the three things that we need to get right? The overlining principle is that there is plenty of opportunity. We should neither squander nor screw it up. Um, never waste a good crisis. But as for three wishes, okay, in specific terms, um, the government to get on with rebooting part of network rail as our, as this new arm's length body that we've always that we've all been talking about uh, for so long. By which I mean uh, the, 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 a, a new body of specialists and experts who know the railway. Um, not to be all-encompassing and all-in-command, but have got sufficient railway knowledge, expertise, and commercial experience, not just within the railway, but a whole range of experience to say to the government, what kind of railway do you want? And what's the budget for delivering it? Mm. Um, and then to get on with it, um, and we need to get on with it. And I think part of the problem at the moment is I wrote an editorial that seems to have struck a chord a few months ago where I said, you know, this, this is the Apollo 13 principle that we've got um, in that if you, you – legislation will take years. So who would you get from part of the, the, the railway structures that we've got to, sort of to corral it all and make it work? And as in Apollo 13, when the carbon dioxide is going up and they give all those engineers a bunch of tubes and gaffer tape and flight manual binders and God knows what, so you have to make a CO2 scrubber out of that. Well, the treasure in the DFT have got what they've got. Well, you know, so is it ORR, RSSB, all these, but when you go through it, and this is where the Sherlock Holmes principle clicks in as well, is that when you've exhausted all the possibilities, whatever you're left with, However, it might not look like the right answer has got to be it. And you just keep coming back to network rail. Um, it, the government owns it. It's there. It's very well populated. It's changed a lot. And we could come on to that, if you like, over the, over the in, in a minute. Network rail is the only show in town. There's no plan B. And I, I this is me just gut feel. I don't know this for sure. This is just 25 years of watching the DFT and the Treasury at work. I think they know that as well. But there's instinctive suspicion on the Treasury on releasing control. And the DFT, nobody likes to give up power. I think at yeah. the top levels of the DFT, there's an understanding of this. Bernadette Kelly, to her great credit, has said many times when she was Director General, she couldn't believe that she was having to decide on coffee mug holders on new trains. There's a permafrost, as there is, was with network rail, which I think doesn't want to give up its authority and power and it's used to deflecting change. And I think we're right on the cusp of the DFT and the Treasury understanding all that, um, hopefully, and doing the right thing. It's by no means assured. Uh, but so my first wish would be for, for, for that to happen. And that network rail has changed quite a lot. If you think about it, um, I've, I've not counted it up, but network rail has probably got more high-grade train operators on its books now than the owning groups. Mm -hmm. If you look at people like Tim Shoveler, Jake Kelly, Alex Hines, um, there are others. There's real operating expertise there, mm -hmm. and since the you know the move from the franchise is the fact that the, the, the to the Irmers uh, and the all the rest of it, um, I think the owning groups, the fire's gone out the bell. They're just contractors now, and mm -hmm. so Network Rail is in a good position um, to have part of it rebooted. It can't look anything like the Network Rail of today. There needs to be devolution carrying on. But actually, there isn't a plan B. Mm. So for wish one is to just get on with that. Uh, wish two, for that new body to get a real national grip. And this might sound superficial at first and not important. But as well as getting that strategy together, how much have we got and what sort of railway do you want? 
the railway really needs to rediscover, um, if you like, a brand affection with the British public. Um, I think the British people love trains, but they hate operating companies. They hate train companies. Mm. Um, one of the things British Rail did get right was its famous This is the Age of the Train um, awareness campaign, you know, kick off your shoes and, and all that. There were, there were some aspects of that campaign which we would not want to go anywhere, anywhere near, of course, not least in terms of who presented a lot of it. <laughs> um, but they were good at that. And that, so that feel, like you've got lots of, whereas at the minute we've just got promotion of endless, numerous train company brands, which is fine. But look, in aviation, you've loads of airlines, but aviation as a means of transport, as an industry, is respected, accepted, and um, unless it really screws up with that 737 MAX, and that's a construction thing. People have got a reasonable view of the aviation industry, despite the fact it treats us all like the proverbial in the name of security and now in the name of COVID. So I hope that the, the, the railway, that this new body gets to grips with creating that brand rail, um, which encompasses everybody. Um, third wish, the, a really big one, proper fares reform. Uh, and this is going to be a real tricky one because the Treasury seems to think that nothing's really changed and that demand is inelastic. But for the last few years, we've seen season ticket usage declining. We've seen Fridays as quiet as anything. Um, Anthony Smith's uh, research has shown a surge of gradual um, increase in off-peak season, uh, off-peak daily tickets. Because the minute mm. you come back to three days a week, you don't need a season ticket. Of course. Um, so that burning platform is now ashes. Um, and I'm not sure that the Treasury's really grasped that, um, as instanced by that news of two point, what is it, six percent fare increase in March. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. But yeah. we need decent fare reform. And you know, just listen to Mark Smith, the man in seat sixty-one. Mark knows more about fares and ticketing than, than anyone. He, he used to be responsible for implementing it when he worked at the DFT. Uh, and he once said to me, we were talking about a particular fares initiative. And he, and he laughed and said it was a dreadful initiative, Nigel, but it was really well implemented. Um, you know, <laughs> he really understands it. And I just hope that kind of expertise is taken note of because we do need change. And the market is changing as well. There will be some, we don't know how much business travel comes back. Right. Uh, I mean, with maybe new kinds of business travel. For example, in 1975, the HSTs pushed commuting out to places like Peterborough, Grantham, Bristol because of the, the fast services. Um, it could well be that um, young professionals only having to spend two or three days in an office might say, well, actually, we could live in York or Newport or Cardiff or Swansea or Exeter, even further away, completely out of the question to commute every day. But hey, I'm happy to do that two or three days a week. Yeah. Opportunity there for the Roscoe's and the train operators to take the ironing boards out of, out of the trains and improve the quality of the offer because the, the, the demand might be for real customer service and, and a real product improvement rather than just cramming in on benches. Yeah. Um, so that could be a new market. Uh, LNER ran that fantastic seat promotion in August and LNER isn't a business railway. There's very few commuters, mm. but they ran that off peak. They sold 30,000 tickets in two or three days. Yeah. So the leisure market is susceptible. If we roll all that all that together um, with a decent fares um, reform, then it could work. 
you know. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. the way this new body, just one last comment on that, and this is why I always thought it was, and I went out on a bit of a limb to, um, you know, say this is what I think is going to happen, is you've got to look at the people involved. Um, you've got Boris Johnson as Prime Minister and you've got Peter Hendy as the chair, not the chief exec, but the chair of Network Realm. Now, I think it was, mm. you know, those two have worked together and Boris understands from two terms as mayor that to say, I want this kind of tube and bus network and I want you to deliver it. Mm. And if you don't, I'll fire you. If you do, I'll give you a pay rise or a night or whatever. So yeah. he understands. If you write that large, he understands it instinctively. And I suspect that there's a lot of that sort of thinking going on. And you've two people in place um, who, who, who get that. Uh, so I do hope that that happens because then you get that political separation. When the SRA was abolished in 2004, I got on very well with Alistair Darling. He was there for four years. I saw him every two months. We got to be really sort of good friends. And after the review in 2004 and the SRA was wrapped up, he said, what do you think? And I said, well, I think you've nationalised blame. Um, I said, when anything goes wrong now, ultimately, if it's not sorted out somewhere else, it's going to end up on your desk. Um, and it took till 2018 and the timetable fiasco for that to happen and it blew up in Chris Grayling's face. Yeah. Um, but there was no one, he said, I'm not in charge. Well, you are by default because there's nobody else. Mm. Um, he got that the hard way and that's why we got Williams. So I think the understanding the DFT that you need someone who's a bit remote if you like, to also, given that political separation, because at the minute you've got a load of civil servants worried about the careers, justifiably, and making the wrong decisions, so it takes forever. You've got politicians who don't want it blowing up in the face. There's no, whereas with a TFL model, you've got that separation, that they can yeah. stand back from it, and it makes sense for everybody. Uh, and I hope we get there, because I fear for the future if we don't, because whoever's running the railway in post-COVID is going to need to be agile, respond quickly to opportunities, and even more quickly to where things aren't working. Um, and the, the combination of the Treasury and the DFT cannot do that. It just can't. No. So, so many interesting things in there. And, and yeah, you know, we, we mentioned before we, we came on air, as it were, that the timing of our podcast recording was um, naively set by myself because we thought that we would have had the Williams recommendation out by now um, in the last week of January, but it appears not. So, um, so we don't know at the moment whether it will appear with the Easter Bunny um, or not, but at some point we'll know. But as you say, there's, there's so much to go at in terms of this arm's length body. I, I love and, and, you know, I fully subscribe to this idea of the railway as a brand. I think there's a lot of we need to kind of rediscover. And I believe strongly that we can rediscover the romance of the railways. There will be a huge pent up demand, I think, for people wanting to get out and travel. And if we can't go abroad, then um, we've got so many opportunities in the UK for places that we can go to. And what an amazing opportunity for the railway to, to be part of that and getting the, the leisure market and getting people to different parts of the country. Um, and fares reform. Yeah, it's a bit of a hot potato, isn't it, Nigel? And, and kind of when we keep coming back to it, and I know in the latest um, issue of, of Rail. There's an a interview with Jack Starr and, um, and Andy from RDG where we're talking about fares reform 
and there's such a lot going on in the background but I guess when you're dealing with a system that allows 55 million different permutations of how to buy a ticket then um, it's not going to be easy and as you've said the Treasury um, have been somewhat resistant is my understanding. Well, they're worried about the law of unintended consequences that you meddle here and you do to, they're worried about driving the overall revenue down and politicians are even more worried about the fact that when you create winners you also create losers um, and that will make you know for a real media problem but we can't put it off any longer um as i said that burning platform is now ashes and it's only being kept going by the the, the covid sort of lulling proceedings if you like it's, this problem has not gone away and has got to be gripped yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the C word, um, obviously over the last uh, 10, 11 months now, our lives have been turned upside down and back to front. Um, we can, there's, there's lots of things that we can get fed up about, but there are also things that people are sharing with me that they've learned, uh, whether that's professionally or personally. They, they kind of, I won't ask you for highlights because um, that might be too too much of a stretch of a question. But what have you learned going through this pandemic? What have you learned? Well, you know, on, on the upside, um, just how brilliant and adaptable um, people can be everywhere. Um, you know, not only in the, the NHS and all those places where people have achieved miracles that we're all familiar with. Um, you know, but if you'd said to me, um, even 12, 12, just over 12 months ago, um, that we would be producing rail, um, with us all working from home and literally never seeing each other. Mm. Um, I said, it's just not possible, you know, but as, as it stands at the minute, you know, we've got, um, trying to make sure we get everybody in, you know, we've got Steph out in the, in the flatlands in Gedney, east of Peterborough, you've Richard in Norwich, um, Paul's in Nottingham, um, Mike is in Peterborough, the production editor, um, Charles, the designer, um, is in Market Deeping, um, Charlotte, my PA, is in Peterborough, and then there's all the other freelancers, but I've seen, I mean, I've been on a train twice in a year, that's unbelievable, but I've only seen Steph three times since September. One was for when we got together after the Rail Awards and we made an, an effort to see each other twice after that. But I haven't seen any of the others other than on meetings like this at all. And yet, you know, I am I could not be more impressed or prouder of the, of the fact that the magazine, as far as I can see, hasn't really missed a beat. Um, you know, the news is as, as good as it, the whole thing is as good as it ever is. There's no declining quality that I can see at all. Sure, we've had our moments on a few things, but they've all done a brilliant, brilliant job. And it just shows how resilient people can be in saying, right, OK, what are we going to do about this? You know, yeah. Um, yeah. and that agility, flexibility and immediacy response is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this arm's length body, because government can't do that. But but. Yeah. But we can, and the railway desperately, desperately needs that. Um, there's quite a few downsides. Um, I mean, professionally, you know me, I'm, I'm a networker. I spent, you know, all my time at my London office, which is, which was Carluccio's, of course, um, at yeah. some Pancras, seen people. Uh, and personally, I have found that very difficult. I've managed to keep up on, on Zoom. But, you know, through personal experience, you can draw some, some big conclusions. Um, and of course, I was in isolation um, a month before everybody else when I had the knee replacement. So at the end of February, yeah. I'm coming up to the first anniversary of largely being here on my own. And it all flows from that. Now, there's no sort of poor me here. It's just facts because I know lots of other people will probably feel 
the same way. The first is that too much introspection is not good for you. Um, I do not think I haven't. You don't find that you sit here looking at the same four walls, reflecting on all the things in life that you think you might have got right. No. Uh, that that is that is difficult. Mm. Um, this is not original. Peter Hendy said I was talking to him about this and talking about working from home. And if you know Peter, you will understand this because the, the language was a bit sort of um, fruitier as well. He said, "No," he says, <laughs> he says, "You're not working from home, Nigel. You're living at work." Um, and and there's a lot flow out from that. But there's some really serious issues. Look, I'm really lucky. You know, I've seen your postings of those fantastic views from, you know, the front of your cottage looking over lovely Lancashire, which I miss terribly. Mm. Um, but I'm equally fortunate. You know, I'm looking out over, you know, some of the green space from the farm next door. I live in a village. The house is nice. I've got a garden. I've got an office and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, I'm not 23 floors from the ground in a small flat with no balcony and possibly two kids and all the rest of it. So I know I'm lucky. I really do. And I'm not grumbling, but I've still found it really hard spending so much time on my own. Um, and I fear that there's real problems that come from this. Um, I worry that accountants and companies will want to secure the savings from smaller um, costs. Yeah. And so everybody likes this. And they love it, but they're, they're, I suppose they all share something in common. They've got decent salaries, they've got nice houses, they've got gardens and offices and families and partners, usually. Yeah. Um, you try that the other way around when you haven't got all those things. Now, I'm lucky in the environment, but as you know, I'm on my own at the moment. Mm. I think how hard it is trying to change that with two metre distancing. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not great. But I worry because this can only be a temporary measure. And those sort of people will be making the decisions about working from home and they'll be making it on their own experience. And they will not be thinking of that. And it's gonna cause terrible problems. I mean, I use the expression, yeah, I have got a gilded cage, but it's still a cage. Yeah. Um, and I worry that, for, and for, very, very, for a number of reasons. One, I've learned this, that um, you can't be creative sitting on your own. Yeah. Um, in the course of my career, I've, I've, had, I've been lucky to be associated with a few successes. Very few of them have been me sitting here having a eureka moment, think let's do that. Most of them have come about from conversation and not from formal meetings either. When somebody comes and puts, puts the backside on your desk and stops for a chat or they see you in the canteen, hey, night, what about such and such? Mm. Um, the National Rail Awards, Clive Nichols just said one day after when he, when he watched all the Ladbroke Brove coverage that was crucifying the railway, why don't we have an awards thing? Give people something to feel good about oh, yeah. um, you can't be creative sitting on your own you need a sense of community and it's not just in media and creative places it's everywhere I agree you know we absolutely yeah. need that human contact um, so personally um, personally professionally there's that yeah um, personally I can well and I'm, you know me I'm pretty resilient uh, but I found this really difficult you yeah. know and, you know, I've had friends who, who have had, um, you know, you don't like to say mental issues and mentally sound, but who, have, who, who are not as robust, say. Mm -hmm. and I dread to think how they might be coping. Yeah. Um, you know, it must be. So we're saving up real problems on all that. But, you know, moving back to the to professionally, yeah, we're ticking over. And I'm making rail function. But let's look at it from my point of view. Where are we going to get the managers of the future? 
Um, I mean, all my team, you know, Steph, Richard, Paul, they're, they're all doing a great job editorial. Paul's, you know, doing his features editor. Richard's leading the news. Steph is doing a brilliant job, deputy. But none of them were born like that. Um, no. Let's take one example. Let's take Steph. <laughs> you know, she has gained the skills she's got that she's using now by being blooded in the everyday life and dealing with a whole range of spectrum of people, issues, problems, people running late, people being stroppy, people being great, people being wonderful. And dealing with that one-to-one is what makes you handle stuff. Yeah. Um, You can't do that from sitting at home. So I genuinely worry that the sort of people who will be making the decisions or those who've got all those advantages, I think this is great, I'm seeing more of the kids, you know, yeah. nice office at home. We need to guard against that for the sake of the people who who do need to be at work um, for the for the social and, you know, the personality, all, all, all yeah. the all mental health things, but also for, for the development of business. If we don't, we'll all, like, <laughs> it's pure Darwin, we'll all end up brains in a jar on the shelf wired into the internet um, and that that really works so there's, there's a lot of yeah. things to to have learned out of it um and we need to learn those lessons you know yeah, and if we absolutely. don't we'll really does that make sense it does and it's and it is a big concern for me and i am i am desperately missing being out and about and seeing people and you know you can have a great conversation like this and it's better in in lots of ways than just being on the phone all day um but it's that that kind of is what you've already alluded to Nigel it's the it's the conversations that are not on the agenda it's the stuff that we didn't convene to talk about but we actually it just popped up in conversation and that's the stuff that I think we're missing and that creativity and the energy that comes from that and the collaboration that comes from that so um, so hopefully it won't be all left to the bean counters to work out what the way forward should look like well we've got to make sure that we're all involved in that because costs and, and money does count especially after the cost of the pandemic of course and we really yeah. want to be, look you know it's that I mean I, we used to have occasional sort of ideas and blue skies day. And what I used to say at the start of all those is, look, and they'd go on all day on different topics. And I'd say, look, never be afraid of suggesting something that you might think is a stupid idea. Mm. Because actually, it might be a stupid idea. And I've had my fair share of them. <laughs> um, but, you know, if, if you actually speak it, somebody across the table will say, oh, hang on. We can't do that, but we could do such and such. Exactly. Now, they wouldn't yeah. have thought of that if you hadn't. You know, it's like the, yeah. the snooker ball going against the cushion and the angle of incident, and it bounces off at a different angle and yeah. goes in the hole. The first shot was never going to go in the pocket. Yeah. And we need, I love that analogy. We absolutely need that. Um, yeah. You know, the, the right to put forward a stupid idea. And there's also a responsibility, incidentally, on the people in the room to occasionally say, no, that is a stupid idea. Let's not talk about it. And I would, <laughs> I would, I would cite that whoever came up with C2C as a train company name, one as a train company, right. the one one from Platform One, um, whoever it was decided to, to trash and dump the world's, one of the world's best known and respected brands, the Royal Mail, and call it Consignia, and finally the, 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 the union flag on the, break, on the back of British Airways aircraft. There are moments when the room needs, somebody in the room needs to have the courage to stick their hand up and say, excuse me, it's a really bad one. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> definitely. So, so Nigel, you know, and, and because we frequently do, we could talk for hours because I always, uh, I always love our conversations. 
Um, to bring your conversation now to a close, um, I have a couple of questions for you. I'm really interested to know, and you know, I'm really lucky. I've got a number of people that I can think of instantly who inspire me, who kind of help me to learn, etc. Um, whether that's in a, in a role model capacity, whether it's just someone who's interesting, um, who would that person that that's on? That might be an impossible question. Who would who inspires you? And uh, and I always ask my guests to share with us their favourite quote, something that they, they go to that means something. It might inspire, it might motivate, it, it might make you think. So, um, so, so to bring this conversation to a close, those are my final two questions for you, please. All right. Well, as, as it won't surprise you to know I'm going to give the answer in several subsections. Um, <laughs> look, working out from home, um, my mum was born dirt poor in the 1930s and mm. she just shrugged it off whatever happened, you know, just get on with it. Don't feel sorry for yourself. You know, so she was just amazing. My history teacher used to live near you before he died, not only yeah. David Clay. Yeah. When I was 14, I was a mess. Um, I was in with the wrong crowd, as he might say, you know, bottom of the class. And he recognised something. I can remember him. Um, I've not got it now, and I wish I had. I'd write an essay. And, you know, he, he, I can't remember just what he said, but you have an ability to put an argument together and you should develop it. This shows real promise. And I think of him every time I write a comment because every one of my comments, and he said, you can argue what you like. He said, it can be the most unfashionable argument. He said, but I want you to make a case. Yeah. Um, and be confronted with a mass of conflicting in information and come out with a coherent argument. Well, that's the realm, isn't it? Absolutely. So I wouldn't be where I am now, but for him. Um, I've been incredibly privileged in the rail industry to have worked up close and personal and come to count some as friends, some of the most inspirational people. Mm. Uh, and not I'm not just talking about executives, I'm talking about there's drivers and shunters and platform staff, and you've seen them at the rail awards. But yeah. all industries need leading. So let's just talk about leaders for the moment. Um, and some of those have have just been incredible and, just, and they all got things in common and just a few names because they'll they'll mean something to you there's some obvious ones and maybe some less obvious ones chris green chris garner mm. john swift adrian shooter john smith debbie francis irina telecki diane crowther lillian greenwood uh, and the numerous other women who are rewriting the face of, of the history mm. um of, of the face of the railway um they're all inspirational in in, in what what they do and how they do it. Um, they've all got things in common. Um, they all inspire. Their staff really support them and would do anything for them. And just permit me, indulge me, just let me tell you one story. In Because this encapsulates all of it. Anybody who can do this. In 1999, when the Wisconsin Central Board um, squeezed Chairman Ed Burkhart out, he invited me to, to accompany him on his farewell tour around the network um, in his own special train which had a 1930s dome car which was privately owned and he looked after it in return for using it and a, and a, and a 1912 built wooden saloon called i think it was prairie rose and it had a classic american veranda on the back and he and i sat there side by side chatting and they went round a series of farewell receptions with his staff um, and the response of the staff team was, and I've got loads of stories like this, but this is the most powerful one. We were in Sault Ste. Marie on the Canadian border for the Sunday tour train up the Algoma Canyon. 
um, which was 20-odd coaches through classic Mamba country, miles and miles of Garol. And it was lakes and fishing cabins and forests and, you know, a 20-coach train full of people bringing picnic baskets went up this canyon. The train ran around and came back. That was it. And we backed down. We were on the back balcony of this veranda of this train as it reversed up against the buffer stops in the centre where everybody got on. And he said, that little low building over there is where we... That's our headquarters, and there's a really nice lady who runs it for us. Oh, he said, there she is, and she appeared from the door. And this 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 woman ran out, ran across the, the car park, climbed up onto the veranda of this back of the train, pushed past me, and she was in floods of tears. And, I mean, can you imagine this happening with any British manager? She, she, she flung her arms round his neck and said, Mr Burkhart, he said, she said, I can't believe what they've done, done to you. And these were the four words that just hit me like a, mm. a baseball bat. She said, you made us believe. Oh, wow. You know, now anybody who can do that, mm. anybody who can do that has yeah. got commercial success at, at their fingertips. Yeah. You made us believe. Now, yeah. anybody who does that inspires me. And those names that I gave you all do it. Oh, all, that, yeah. some of them yeah. some of them can be extremely annoying as indeed i can you know <laughs> but they all do that you know every one of those names yeah. made people believe and that's what the railway needs now if we can ally that making us believe with the agility needed for those people to do the best and something else ed said to me which which you know once I, and i've got a few stories i'll tell you another time like that and i said yeah. how the hell do you do that he said, what? I said, people, would they would take a bullet for you. Mm. And, and he thought for a minute, and he sort of drawled back, and if you know Ed, you would get this. He said, it's actually real simple, Nigel. He said, you find the best people and then just get out of the way. Wow. You know, so you wanted a quote. You wanted a quote. Well, um, I suppose there's, 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 there's kind of... You have so many amazing expressions and fabulous things that I've built into my own vocabulary. Well, there's, there's, <laughs> and I thought, that's an Nigel. Did I roll my eyes out loud? Is one of my favourites. There's, 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 there's two that it boils down to. I mean, I mentioned my mum earlier, and I guess now it's my dad's turn. My dad was an engineer, toolmaker, draftsman, right. very precise in what he did. Um, and I, I could, whatever we were doing, whether it was schoolwork, my algebra homework, working together on a model railway, you know, he used to say, there's two ways to do a job, and that's properly or not at all. Right. And yeah. that was one. Um, and I don't want this to sound too sort of um, pompous, but one of the jobs Rail's got is, is I suppose, is, is, is to stimulate thought leadership. And I really do try to do that um, in, in the editorial. And this is just this is going to sound pretentious, but it's a Martin Luther King quote, where he said, "Real leaders don't merely seek consensus; they shape it." Um, and that, to me, is one of the things which we try to do with our opinion pieces. I certainly try to do it in common, and that's not saying saying this is the way to do it, but it's to throw the oil into the debating machine to try and help keep, advance the debate from which hopefully the right answers will emerge. Yeah. And those two are pretty much at the base of core of what I do and who I am, I guess. Yeah. Fantastic. I hope it doesn't sound too pretentious, like I say. Definitely not. Definitely not. Nigel, I knew I would enjoy it. 
Um, I, I've, you've told me that Ed Burkhart story before, and every uh, whenever I hear it, I still feel. Well, so I, had a, I had a bit of an emotional moment there, so um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. I'm hugely grateful to you for taking the time to do it and for joining us on the podcast. And um, and you and I will continue to look forward to um, a nice lunch when we're allowed back out uh-huh. in the wild again. A two-bottler, and you can share some more of these stories with me because you know I love them. Take care, and thank you again for joining me. Stay safe. You too. Bye. My huge thanks to Nigel for joining me on Intuitive Insights podcast for episode number nine. Our next guest is Mark Hotwood, Managing Director of Great Western Railway who will be joining us in two weeks' time.